0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, I'm Jeffrey Mason, researcher at the Charter Cities Institute. And today's guest from the podcast is Alex Narasta. Alex is the Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And our topic of conversation today is his new book, co-authored with Benjamin Powell, Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. Thank you for listening. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. So I really enjoyed reading your book. So can you tell us sort of explain the central thesis, the central argument that you're trying to advance in Wretched Refuse and why in particular you're grounding your arguments in sort of the Michael Clemens trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk framing
2: sure so this project is sort of the result of my entire career sort of the end point i guess in my career recently which is that i study immigration how it affects the united states and other developed countries and the overwhelming evidence is that immigrants make the us a wealthier country and every counter argument against immigration is wrong you know they're assimilating they don't lower wages They're less likely to be criminals, you know, et cetera. So these are really like solid arguments. But there's one sort of increasingly common counterargument that was largely unexplored. And so that's the subject of this book. And that counterargument is that because immigrants come from countries with generally worse institutions, and by institutions I mean sort of economic rules, economic policies, political rules, et cetera, That they might, through voting or through affecting the culture or through some other means, worsen America's economic or political institutions, thus killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Because I think, and I think the overwhelming evidence supports this theory, that the reason why we're sort of a wealthy developed country and why other countries are wealthy, that are wealthy and developed are that way – is because of these political and economic institutions that allow that increased productivity. So although immigration is sort of an enormous benefit currently, it could be that there's a point where too much immigration will import these really bad institutions and destroy and overwhelm the institutions that make us a productive country. And so what we did was we sort of took a look at some of the evidence out there and drawing on academic papers that we wrote that we've written over the years on this topic we were some of the first people to write about this as well as other research by other scholars like michael clemens Uh, we decided to explore this so the sort of big foundational piece that starts us off is this paper by michael clemens in 2011 published in the journal of economic perspectives about the economic benefits of immigration and what he finds through his work and his literature survey is that the marginal immigrant to the united states from a developing country can expect a you know, fourfold increase in their wages. And the result of a sort of global free migration policy would be to increase global GDP gross world product by about 50 to 150%. So trying to find out whether the potential negative downsides of immigrants affecting institutions on this economic benefit was sort of the goal of this book.
1: Yeah, that's quite a lofty project, and I think you guys do a great job of presenting that evidence and and tackling that. So let's talk a little bit more about how you say if if someone in a low-income country moves to the United States or – Germany or wherever, they can probably expect sort of a big boost in their income. I think the top country in sort of the the chart that you present is that like the average person in Yemen is going to 16x their income just by moving to the United States. So can you talk a little bit more about sort of the dynamics that actually make that possible, how that person goes from earning so little to so less just by moving somewhere?
2: So wages are determined by the marginal value product of the worker. And that's sort of a fancy economist way of saying, basically, how much you can produce determines what you can get paid. And workers in the United States, for instance, are much more productive individually than an identical worker in Yemen. So just by moving from a place like Yemen, which is you know war-torn, currently, there's massive starvation people aren't that educated, there aren't that many businesses, the institutions are bad, so that even if you start a business, there's a good chance that warlords or rival clans or the government will steal your property and production. And moving from a place like that to, say, upstate New York, where a lot of Yemenis immigrants are in the United States... You know, you can take advantage of a much more productive society, much more capital that has been accumulated that will make you more productive as an employee. You can take advantage of, you know, well-developed businesses that are organized efficiently to maximize profits because we have a economic system here. That, although it's full of problems and we could talk about those forever, the fundamental economic institutions are pretty good, which is that we have private property that incentivizes businesses and workers and consumers and everybody to try to maximize their own benefits, internalize these benefits, make wise investments, and to build goods and services that other people want to buy for the future. And so, just by moving from a place, you know, Yemeni immigrant doesn't get stronger or smarter by moving here, but he does get access to a more productive economy, better capital, and more well-managed businesses that just in turn make him more productive. And by virtue of being more productive, his wages go up substantially.
1: Interesting. So what is sort of the pro-immigration response to, well, sort of there's like an obvious case, let them move here, they can become more productive. Why focus on that rather than say, trying to improve Yemen. That's sort of a common, I think, counterargument that gets raised here. So what is your response to, well, why not focus on, say, fixing Yemen?
2: Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with fixing Yemen, yeah. right? I mean, it, it would be, right. it would be <laughs> I don't want to keep Yemen poor. But what matters are whether the Yemenis are poor, right? The people. Mm-hmm. I don't care about the average economic production on some arbitrary piece of land. You know, what matters is if the people living there are wealthy or not, if they can satisfy their material demands or not. And in that sense, their physical location isn't that important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, what matters is whether the people there are living the lives that they want to be able to live. And so it would be great if Yemen reformed its institutions, if the government instituted some prior property rules and enforced contract rules and had free trade and very low taxes and a tolerable administration of justice. But even If they were to do that, it would take decades of generations for Yemen productivity to rise to the level of that of, say, the United States. A much easier, much more efficient and much more likely to work, frankly, system would be to allow Yemenis who want to to come to the United States and immediately go, you know, within the course of a week (laughs) to see their wages go up by 16 fold rather than it taking – hundred years, in which case they're not ever going to take advantage of that. And then there's the second point, which is even if these countries try to do these reforms, they probably, there's a good chance they'll fail. You know, there's a long history of countries around the world trying to do these reforms and some really succeed, obviously, you know, the world's a lot richer than it was. Some of them succeed, like East Asian countries, mm-hmm. I think have done a great job. Uh, some of the Eastern countries, you know, like the UAE, And Oman have done a great job of reforming. Israel has. Jordan has. Some countries in South Africa, like Botswana, have done a great job. To mention nothing of like Peru, Chile. And, you know, the list goes on. Lots of countries can do it. But the list of countries that have failed is even longer. So, you know, most other sub-Saharan African countries, a lot of countries in South America and Central Asia have just not reformed their institutions to the point where they can get the sustainable endogenous growth economic growth that's so important. So, and not to mention, right, like, you know, big first world countries bossing around third world countries telling them what to do, you know, like in Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States, total failures, total embarrassing, brutal humanitarian, economic and political failures to get those reforms. So it's just, if we want to actually improve the lives of people or, or allow people to improve their own lives the most efficient easiest and most likely to succeed path is to allow these people to move from countries with bad institutions to countries with good institutions
1: right so when we're talking about sort of people being able to move from one place to another and dramatically improve their well-being there's sort of this talk of the idea of sort of brain gain and drain that you know if a smart person from say Nigeria moves to the US that's the United States' gain and Nigeria's loss and that the receiving country receives the benefits of having that person while descending country loses that person so let's dig into that story a little bit is sort of international migration purely a story of gain and drain or is there a little more more to it than that
2: yeah there's a lot more to it than that i mean this is a positive sum wealth creation in the same way that trade is right you're moving you know people are moving from places like say, in your example from nigeria to the united states you know, I could take a look in the book about like the wage gain from Nigeria to the United States. I don't know off the top of my head, but it is substantial. So let's say that move. Oh, here it is. It's 15.8 fold increase, right? So that worker going from Nigeria to the United States, it's a, you know, 15.8 or 16 fold increase in wages. That's a guy or a girl or a woman who is moving from a place and will be that much more productive in the United States. So it's not like just a reallocation of scarce resources, productivity from Nigeria to the United States. It also is just a growth in the value of those resources by growing the productivity. And it's important. You're, you're right. Like the United States does gain from this, but the biggest gainer from this is the immigrant himself. You know, that Nigerian who moves captures the vast majority of all of those benefits, you know, by a lot of estimates somewhere around 98% of the benefits of that person moving get captured by the mover, by the migrant himself. So there's really no better way to pull Nigerians out of poverty than by allowing a lot more of them to move to the United States. Uh, you know, In the same sense that virtually every Cuban and Haitian who's ever climbed out of poverty has done so by moving to the United States, <laughs> virtually you know, a lot of these Nigerians who are going to eventually get out of poverty will do so by leaving their home country. Now there's the aspect you raised about the brain drain, right? Like a lot of these people who are moving are, you know, middle-class or upper-class people with educations. And if they stayed in their home countries, like in Nigeria, they would be more productive than the average Nigerian. And they probably would contribute a good amount to the growth in these countries. But the thing is the incentives that this creates, right? The incentive that in order to move, you will do better if you're a little bit more highly educated, you have more human capital that you can develop, you can save more money and invest it in your new country it gives an incentive for lots of people in Nigeria and other poor countries to do those things, to get more education, to get more skills, because it will allow them to move and it will allow them to be more productive in their new countries. So by doing that, you know the evidence shows that there's sort of just a leftover. There's more investment in accruing capital, human capital and physical capital because there is the possibility of moving than there would be if you couldn't move. And you think about it this way, right? Like if you're born in a poor American city like Detroit, which has, you know, suffered tremendously over the last several decades from economic mismanagement in the city center, as well as, you know, just changing economic situations. If you couldn't move from Detroit to another city that's doing well in the United States, why invest in your education? Why invest in building up capital? Why learn new skills? Because you're never going to be able to leave Detroit and there's no opportunity there. So, why leave? Why invest and improve your productivity? Whereas, if you can move, you're much more likely to do those things, much more likely to improve your skills because you can move. And as a result, a lot of people who do these, you know, pursue a higher education, earn more skills, some of them decide not to leave. So, the general effect, empirical effect, is that the skill level, the human capital level, the capital level increases in these countries because people having the ability to leave and be more productive elsewhere. And that's to say nothing about remittances, right? Nothing to say, you know, that's nothing to say about people sending money and resources and know-how back home after they leave. So if you want to think about just in that way, like a purely sort of mechanical international trade flow way, these poor countries are exporting what they have a lot of, which is, you know, labor, and they are importing through remittances what they don't have a lot of, which is capital.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So we've sort of talked about how there are these... Huge gains sort of at the individual level sitting on the table. But then when we sort of look at immigration research and you know, we try to say what is the effect of on wages and employment of immigration, what what are the magnitudes of those effects? And it seems that they're often in an aggregate sense quite small. George Borjas' negative numbers are relatively similar to say Giovanni Perry's positive numbers. So like square that circle a little bit. There's these huge gains on the table, and yet sort of the national level aggregate effects tend to be quite small.
2: So the Perry research that you mentioned, the Borjas research, what those primarily look at is the changes in relative wages of native-born American workers as a result of immigration. So it's not like an absolute decline in wages that Borjas finds. He just finds that relative to workers in other educational categories – the educational attainment, uh, the, the wages of Americans who are high school dropouts, goes down by about 1.7 percent. So it's not like a 1.7 percent decline. It's just relative to other workers, their wages are a little bit lower. So they're all up for all these workers over the whole time, right? It's just that relatively, they're a little bit lower than what they relative to other American workers. So. The net effects on American workers are pretty small in terms of their wages, but the net effect of having like additional workers in the United States who are making 30, 40, 50, or $100,000 even more a year by producing that much more in value is quite high. So the effect on total economic production in the United States is enormous. For instance, like the total amount of production by Asians and Hispanics living in the United States is over $2 trillion a year somewhere around a little bit more than 10% of total production in the United States. And those are people who are either immigrants or the descendants of immigrants, like relatively recent descendants of immigrants in the United States. So that won't show up so much in like the wages of native-born Americans. It'll show up a little bit. you know. On net, both Borjas and Perry find that American-born wages have gone up you know, a little bit due to immigration. But the big, big effect is just there will be so much more stuff made in the United States. And immigrants do capture the majority of those gains, but there will just be so much more production. And so that is sort of where the big gains are.
1: Got it. Something that I think is particularly interesting and that you touch on in the book is this sort of deep roots or persistence literature that has emerged in recent years that I think is pretty interesting. Sort of this idea that there's these observable long-term differences in outcomes across countries that arise from these sort of long-standing, historical, cultural, geographic, institutional, other factors that stretch back hundreds or potentially even thousands of years. Both Nathan Nunn and Leonard Wanchikon have been recent guests on the podcasts. They have a very interesting paper about the slave trade and current social trust in Africa. The recent Clark medalist, Melissa Dell, is also doing some interesting work in this area. But you're a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to deep roots and its relationship to the study of immigration. So can you explain sort of what the Deep Roots and immigration and story is and why you're sort of a little bit skeptical about that effect?
2: Very briefly, the Deep Roots idea is that there are cultural factors and potentially genetic factors in human beings that due to choices made in the distant past, people are basically locked in to productivity or to a certain level of living relative to other countries. So it'll be something like, you know, China has always been developed or richer than other societies on average. Long run, we would expect China to be wealthier than other places. Of course, it really hasn't worked out that way. China has had a lot of fits and starts. So that's basically like the big change. And the the major paper by Putterman and Weil that is about this, I was published in 2010, makes adjustments where they basically estimate an ancestry score for the U.S. and all these other countries. And they try to find out how long these countries, you know, the people who've lived in these countries, how long their ancestors have lived in countries with a centralized state, with settled agriculture, and their levels of where they are in the technological frontier at various points in the past. And they basically say there's a very strong correlation where if your ancestors, if the sort of sum total ancestry score of your country is high, then on this metric then you're much more likely to be rich than if your numbers are poor. So it's basically just like this persistence of historical factors. And it's really hard to break out from this. There are a number of problems with this. The big one is there are basically four major outliers, or sorry, three major outliers in here. One is China. China is a lot poorer than you'd think, given its high scores. The second one is India, which is also a lot poorer than you'd think given the persistence of civilization on the Indian subcontinent. And the third outlier is the United States, which is a lot richer than you would expect given our ancestry scores. And the fact that the three biggest countries in the world are outliers in this research tells me there's probably something a little funny going on here, not to mention the fact that countries in the Middle East, like Iran and Syria and Iraq, have some of the oldest settlements in the world, as far as we can tell, some of the highest ancestry scores are in our very, very poor countries, desperately poor countries. So there are just too many outliers and too much going on here for me to have much confidence in it. The other one is there's a problem with spatial autocorrelation. So not without getting too much in the weeds, we expect places to be similar in their economic outcomes compared to their neighbors. And that is exactly what we see in there. And there are some ways to account for spatial autocorrelation. And when you do so, basically, location around the world and geography explains virtually all of the differences <laughs> amongst these countries, right? So it's just not that convincing. Furthermore, there are a lot of countries in these places that have escaped the ravages of poverty without changing their ancestry scores. And that makes me a little skeptical. And then lastly, the big thing, and we did research on this published in the Journal of Bioeconomics, uh, Ryan Murphy and I, the U.S. states have radically different ancestry scores, right? I mean, if you take a look at a state like Mississippi, for instance, and compare it to West Virginia and compare it to, say, Washington state, radically different demographics, radically different sort of ancestry scores based on histories of American slavery, on settlement patterns in American states and on immigration settlement patterns. So there's like differences between American states that are vast in terms of these ancestry scores developed by Putterman and Weill. And what we find is there's basically no relationship. Like American scores, American GDP per capita is basically not related to a lot of these sort of ancestry metrics. And in a place like the United States, we have a sample size of 50 with radically different outcomes, and radically different economic outcomes and radically different ancestry scores, it doesn't work. So, you know, it, it could be that Putterman and on this deep root stuff, it makes a lot of sense. But the econometric problems with it and the counter arguments and counter examples are so loom so large and are so important that I'm a bit of a skeptic that I am not willing to assign a large percentage of the credit for differences in economic activity around the world to merely how well your ancestors did at arbitrary points in the past.
1: Right. So I guess I'm curious, do you think that sort of how would you phrase it, like recent political developments that sort of are not long standing historical trends, but sort of big stopping point events sort of complicate this story. So like you say like India was one example that you brought up that we might have expected would have done better over time, perhaps than it did in sort of like a counterfactual sort of scenario, say it wasn't colonized or we didn't have sort of the long license Raj period, for instance, Would you like, you know, if I had not for these specific historical accidents, you might call them, we might expect them to be, you know, two, three, four X times wealthier than they are currently.
2: So my perspective is a little bit different, right? I think the exception in world history are those places that have developed. And the general, like the natural state of humanity is extreme poverty, right? So I don't know if, I mean, India has only really underperformed relative to this deep roots theory and relative to countries that have done really well. But if Mm -hmm. the West didn't develop, right, I don't think India would be an outlier in terms of like underperforming, right? I think it'd Mm -hmm. probably just be like average in the middle of the pack, like every other country, maybe even a little bit better. You know, India's economic history is fascinating. They had a well-developed textile industry going back centuries, uh, maybe thousands of years, if I uh, remember it correctly, cotton exports. And it wasn't really until like the Portuguese and to a lesser extent, the Arabs and the English and others sort of came into – Indian Ocean trade and used a combination of sort of force as well as just sort of growing European productivity to basically destroy a lot of those markets. And that was a problem. On the other hand, Indian institutions, when it came to like the accumulation of capital and banking, were quite underdeveloped to the extent where, where the British came into places like Calcutta and set up shop and started to protect sort of the local Indian bankers, all the Indian bankers basically moved to Calcutta and funded the British East India Company and their war against the Mughals and other Indian rebels who were seeking to come in and sort of basically just like loot these bankers. William Dalrymple has a fantastic sort of uh, explanation of this in his recent book about the history of the British East India Company. So, you know, I don't think India would be great, you know, had it not been for colonization, maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit worse on some margins. But I think definitely the license Raj, you know, this sort of post-independence obsession with basically British Fabian socialism is probably the thing that did more than anything else to ruin them. So in the way, if you want to blame colonization, you know, British colonization for Indian poverty. I think the much better argument is to say like Indians learned a bunch of really bad lessons from the British in terms of socialism (laughs) rather than like the sort of native, rather than like the British exploitation of India, which they really didn't make much money on anyway. I mean, Jake, I think it was an old economic historian, Wiener did a lot of work on this and the British government lost money managing India. So I would say like, I would blame, you know, British intellectuals and Fabian socialists and all these other silly intellectual trends for unfortunately influencing indians more than anything else that's sort of a diversion from the key part of your question i think but you know one of the other big exceptions i think to this is china right like if you're trying to explain deep roots and you're looking at china which was long the most developed and richest society in world history right i think you can make a fair claim that half of recorded human history has occurred in china including many of the great Discoveries. And if you're going to track China over time, up until like the 1700s or, or maybe even 1800, it's probably the richest country in the world. And maybe even on per capita, it's very close to the top. And then you have a big divergence between then and basically to like 1990 or 2000. And I thought, like, okay, what explains that? Is it the native born Chinese institutions that are gravitated toward communism? Is it foreign wars and invasions like during the fall of the Qing dynasty, Boxer Rebellion, things like that? Is it war and invasion from the Japanese? Or is it their turn towards socialism, you know, which might have some roots, which is obviously like a European created idea, at least the Marxist variety is European And then they sort of Mao took it in sort of this Confucian, even worse direction, right? That You know, it's like Marxism with Chinese characteristics was even worse than Marxism with European characteristics. So, I mean, how do you explain that and square that, these like wide century-long deviations with deep roots theory? I mean, it really doesn't explain why people change. Like, why is it that Botswana went from like a very poor country to a very wealthy country in a very short period of time? Why is it that, you know, the UAE and some of the other countries are from very poor to very rich? Why is Japan, you know, which was backwards for a very long time, that intentionally chose institutions to block itself out from the rest of the world for centuries. And then an American warship sailed into the harbor in 1850s and forced them to change their policies. You know, why would they choose to intentionally make themselves poor and cut off from the rest of the world? There's just a lot that cannot be explained by deep roots.
1: Right. Let's stay on sort of this topic of culture for a moment, which is sort of the black box of explaining economic outcomes. And so in the book, you say there's not really any evidence to suggest that freer immigration impacts sort of pro-growth, pro-productivity sort of cultural elements in high-income countries. Is there an upper bound to that point that if you have sort of free immigration up to some say share of the population you know this holds, but at some point your institutions do start to look like those of lower income countries or sort of in or, you know, as or as at the opposite, as you approach something approaching open borders, sort of the findings continue to hold
2: so we don't really know, and part of the reason we don't know is the economics of culture literature is frankly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Like I'm trained in economics, right? And my bias, my prejudice is that economists do a lot of very good work, and that if there's a well-developed econ literature on a topic, then you need to take it seriously. So that's the feeling that I went into researching this chapter for this book. So I read a lot of the economics of culture literature, including the most important pieces, and I was struck by how terrible it is. Generally, <laughs> it was shocking. In what to sense?
1: Me. Terrible in what sense?
2: There are no macroeconomic models. That seek to explain how culture affects growth. There are merely some older and not very convincing regression analyses that seek to link the response to the generalized social trust question, the World Value Survey, to economic outcomes in countries. But there is no model that incorporates trust or incorporates these other cultural perspectives or things like that. That is incorporating these models. So it's just like a hand wavy, look at this correlation type thing. Like, okay, that might be interesting. But then it turns out you dig into it. A lot of these correlations are also like pretty weak and based on this, you know, this trust question from the World Value Survey. And the question is something, you know, off the top of my head, right? It's something to the extent of, you know, generally speaking, can most people be trusted? And it's like, yes, you can't be too careful or don't know. And the correlations between that and, you know, per capita income are, you know, fairly positive on the world level. But in many of these big papers, they're super sensitive to the countries that you put into this metric. Right. So the first paper about this in 19, I believe, 1997, Knapp and Kiefer, basically, you know, if you add in one or two countries that they excluded, it goes away. And that's just like not robust. And then you have the question of endogeneity, right? Does economic growth make people trust more? Because for whatever reason, right? Living in a wealthier society, you have less reason to expect people to steal or something, maybe. You know, there's all these sort of counter arguments that you can tell, these counter stories that you can tell that seem to also make a lot of sense. And then the whole trust and culture argument, there are robust and large number of experiments And the laboratory with surveys sort of in the laboratory, you play these games, you play different types of trust games that economists have developed. And it's really not consistent with the trust literature says, right? A lot of people who we would expect to have low trust actually have higher trust than a lot of people who would expect to have high trust. So what's weird is like some people from East African countries have higher trust than like British people, which is not something that you'd expect from these experiments. And I think that one of the big problems is like a lot of these data are just terrible we don't know what we're actually measuring with the trust question. Are we measuring whether people are trustworthy or whether they actually trust? And it seems to me like being trustworthy is much more likely to be true. And there's a lot of like – and you change like these questions just a little bit and the score is radically reversed. So Japan is a country with high level of trust. You sort of ask people what they mean when they answer this trust question and it's slightly different than what we think in the United States, right? So in the United States, we get asked this question. We think, oh, can you trust strangers? And Japan and other places, they think, can I trust the people that I know? Interesting. And people are much more likely to trust people that they know, right? Than they are yeah. a stranger. Like, I'm a, you know, I don't know you that well, Jeff, right? But I trust you a lot more than some random stranger off the street, <laughs> right? Thank so you. It, Yeah, well, you know, you've earned it, right? You haven't robbed <laughs> me yet. Uh, <laughs> you haven't screwed me over in a business deal yet. So if I were to answer this question and think about, you know, Jeff versus some stranger, that's a radically different answer in my mind. Not to mention the fact that we have a bunch of very cheap ways to get around not trusting people, you know, like credit card security, which really solves all these problems. So how much trust do we really need for a wealthy society? I think not very much, you know, basically enough trust for me to be able to give my credit card to somebody behind the counter and me to think that there's like a really, really low chance that he's going to steal my number. I think it's pretty much what we need. And then, you know, to bring it back to immigration. So I don't think culture matters that much, or we just don't understand how culture matters. Let me put it that way. You know, culture may matter, but we just don't understand it. And then when we take a look at, you know, changing cultural characteristics of immigrants and their descendants, they basically change pretty quickly to a lot of American norms. And on some norms that measure, such as trust, right, I don't think generalized social trust matters that much. But when you ask people whether they trust specific institutions, you know, whether you trust big business, whether you trust Congress, whether you trust the courts, all these things that are really important for trusting American economic institutions, immigrants are much more likely to have confidence in these things than native-born Americans. So if you think trust in specific institutions matter and you're worried that immigrants could undermine that, it's actually immigrants building these things up rather than, you know, from the pernicious opinions of native-born Americans, right? Like my immigrant grandfather from Iran has a lot more trust in the U.S. government merely because he saw a dysfunctional government in his youth, like, up close and personal. So, like, I remember like some comment I made to him in the mid '90s, where I was upset about, you know, the Republican Congress not liberalizing the country as much as they promised to do, right? And lying. I'm like, "Oh, this government's terrible. They're lying, blah blah blah." And my grandfather said something to the effect of, "Yeah, they're not good, but man, it's a lot better than the government I grew up with, even with all of its problems." So, you know, that perspective, I think, is pretty valuable. Like yeah, my underrated. Sort of first, underrated, like my first world privilege, which I'm glad I have, I really need to check that sometimes. And I think we all do sometimes to realize in some ways how good we have it. These things can always be better, right? And I spend my life trying to make them better. That's my job at the Cato Institute. But sometimes, you know, compared to Iran <laughs> or Mexico or, you know, Nigeria, we're really living you know, the totality of human experience in a country that's pretty close to (laughs) utopia.
1: So you present some interesting case studies in the book that sort of touch on all of these big themes that you hit. And I think the Jordan one that you present is really fascinating, because it's sort of one of the few cases where we're looking at what happens with mass immigration from sort of weak institution to weak institution country rather than from weak institution to high institution country. So tell us a little bit about that research and sort of what you found there.
2: Sure. So I want to contrast this with another bit of research we did in the paper, right? So we have these cross-country comparisons, and we take a look at what's called economic freedom, which is a measure put out by the Cato Institute in combination with Fraser, which is a Canadian think tank. And it's basically a measure of how free market your economy is. And it's highly correlated with development, human development, wealth, et cetera. And so we take a look at these cross-country regressions, and we basically looking at 110 countries, finding that there's a positive, significant relationship where more immigration in the past means that you have higher income today. And by the past, I mean like 10 or 20 years ago. So it's not like a deep roots argument, right? It's saying like immigrants, once they've had time to settle, they don't undermine your institutions 10 or 20 years later. Now that's all well and good, but as any economist or econometrician will tell you, like it's not the strongest piece of evidence because cross-country regressions are a little weak. But so what we did was we tried to look for what we call quasi-natural experiments, And what these are is we take a look at some massive change in immigration to a country that is not caused by anything that country did. So what I mean by this is like in the example of Jordan, Jordan got an enormous number of Palestinian Kuwaitis coming in the course of a year. That basically increased equal to about 10% of Jordan's population in the course of a year. This source of immigration was not caused by a change in Jordanian policy. But it was caused by a war that Jordan had no part in. So they basically got this huge surge of refugees to their country in one year. And by a quirk and Jordanian law, they were already allowed to work and live in Jordan. So you had a – Which
1: is not the norm for most refugees.
2: Which is not the norm almost anywhere, right? So it's a big, very important thing. So you have the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, the first Gulf War. The Iraqis basically expelling every Palestinian who lived in Kuwait, which was an enormous number. They were able to go to Jordan immediately over the border and start working right off the bat. Huge increase in the population, you would expect, and from Kuwait, which had worse economic institutions than Jordan did at the time. And what happened was Jordan, at, you know, beginning shortly thereafter, embarked on a campaign of economic reforms where they went from looking like a basically terrible, dirigiste, quasi-socialist Middle Eastern Muslim country in terms of economic policy to looking like an OECD country within about 10 years with this massive sustained improvement compared to, of course, almost every other country in the Middle East, compared to other Muslim-majority countries, just a huge improvement in their institutions. And the qualitative evidence that we have about why these reforms happened basically show us that it was the reaction to these Palestinian refugees coming in in such large numbers. You know, The Jordanian government had tried to reform its economic institutions multiple times in the 1980s. It failed every time. With this sort of sudden surge, you had sort of a couple things change. One, the Palestinians were generally more pro-business, especially small business than the native-born Jordanians. Secondly, the Jordanians realized they had to bring Palestinians into their sort of governing coalition because there are so many of them. Like at this point, basically the Palestinian ethnicity had risen to about half of Jordan's population, right? So they had to bring these folks in to govern. And then third was Jordan had a lot of economic problems, high unemployment, and the government realized we can't sustain our terrible government policies. We need to make sure these people can work, or otherwise, there is going to be some very bad political consequences. And so they realized they had to liberalize the economy to get these people working. So it's like a big combination of things which basically support you know the notion that this sudden massive immigration is what caused Jordan to liberalize institutions and to improve them substantially. That's fascinating. It's really something that, you know, I wasn't expecting. We've taken a look at another quasi-natural experiment with Israel, which also had really bad economic institutions in the early 90s. And then sort of the fall of the Soviet Union, Soviet Jews were able to go. And there's really not many other countries that have economic institutions worse than the Soviet Union. Uh, So, you know, they came in and then it's a very similar story, you know, massive economic reforms in a liberalizing direction. But Israel was already like a developed country at that time, right? It had, you know, some roots of institutions that were fairly okay. They weren't great, right, by our standards. But there were, you know, pretty good. At least, you know, they were okay. They weren't as bad as they could have been, right? But, you know, seeing that change in a developed nation that was already pretty much a stable democracy, okay, I could believe that. But seeing it happen in a, you know, quasi-authoritarian country with very weak political and economic institutions like Jordan, that was a real eye opener for us when we did this research.
1: And I'm curious, are there any other potential sort of research? Cases there that you think maybe haven't been done that might be fruitful.
2: Yes, but I'm waiting for some more years of data to accrue. Mm. So there's two. One is the Syrian diaspora mm-hmm. in large parts of the Middle East. Now that's not quite as good as the Soviet Jews to Israel or the Palestinian Kuwaitis to Jordan because they're basically not allowed to vote in any of these countries or like directly influence you know political and economic institutions. But there are mm. a large number of them living in places like Turkey. In Jordan and a few other places around there. So, that might be something worth taking a look at in some detail. The other one that's sort of the huge one right now is Venezuelans who have fled that country's economic collapse under socialism to its
1: neighbors. Colombia co- has been surprisingly open. Surprisingly, yeah, yeah,
2: surprisingly open. And somewhere, I believe it's like 5% of Colombia's population now are Venezuelan refugees. So, it's a pretty substantial number. And Colombia lets them work, basically treats them like citizens, mostly in terms of their economic, their ability to work in the Colombian economy. But you also have a lot of other countries in South America where it's basically 5% Venezuelan too now. So instead of having like one country they go to, like in the Jordan or Israel example, we have maybe like four or five countries where the Venezuelans have gone to in roughly similar proportions. Mm -hmm. So
1: that sets up a great experiment.
2: It is something that I am so excited <laughs> when we have a few more years of data to dig into this experiment. Mm-hmm. Now, what I've noticed so far since you know the Venezuelans started to leave in very large numbers is countries like Colombia, their economic freedom score is basically flat. Mm-hmm. So it hasn't improved. It also hasn't gotten worse. And the whole point of my book, right, and the big find in my book is – Immigrants definitely don't worsen economic institutions in places where they go. And there is some evidence in some cases that they improve them. So if they don't make them worse and you get all this economic gain from them coming, then there's no good counterargument against it. So I don't need to say, right? I don't need to say they improve them. I just need yeah. to say they don't make them worse and I win.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's – I want to turn a little bit to – you discuss some of these – a few of these things in the book. There's also some that, that aren't – that I'd like to touch on, some current sort of policy discussions. So one thing that you do mention in the book, talking about H-1B visas, the the sort of high-skill immigrant work visas that the United States uses. And right now I believe it was to be implemented and I think has now gone back to like a pending status – There's a rule at DHS that would shift H-1B visa allocation from a lottery, a random lottery, to a wage-based allocation system. So could you talk a little bit about that, and do you consider that an improvement?
2: Yeah, it's an improvement, but not a big one. You know, If we have to have a numerical limitation on the number of immigrants who can come in, then I think it makes sense to allocate those based on how well they do in the United States, in which case... You know, the expected wages, the higher wage earners, like the wages they can expect might be a good proxy. The easy thing to do would just be to auction them because then, you know, we could allocate these resources based on people's willingness to pay. And then there Mm -hmm. might be some other things that just can't be measured with wage data. You know, or on applications, you know, like, for instance, like energy <laughs> or, you know, ambition, right? Like all these people are pretty ambitious, but some are probably more ambitious than others. So these are a lot of things that can't really be measured through like wage, expected wages to be paid in the United States. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think that rule is an improvement if we have to have a limitation on H-1B visas. Because of what, what happens is if they're allocated via lottery and to give you sort of background on this or the listeners background, H-1B visa is a temporary work visa for high skilled workers. There are 85,000 of them allocated each year to private employers. And because so many more apply for it than there are slots, they're allocated via lottery. And this gives an incentive for a lot of employers to enter a lot more applications than they would ideally like to hire. And a lot of those applications are for people who are making the uh, wage minimum in order to enter the lottery, which is $60,000 a year. So, uh, you know, let's say there's like two people who have entered the lottery. You know, one person will be paid 120,000, the other person will be 60,000. You know, the notion that there's like an equal chance that those workers could be selected, I think is pretty like economically asinine. And there's no, you know, if we have to choose, right? Like if if we can't let in both of them,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, for a gain of $180,000, then we should at least let in the one who's $120,000.
1: So you mentioned an auction. I'm curious, are you talking about from an employer side or from the immigrant side? Because I also wanted to touch on sort of you put forward this idea of sort of an immigration tax or, or immigration tariff where a prospective immigrant could essentially pay for access. So talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So I think it could be either and be more efficient. But I think a system where employers and the immigrants themselves can like combine or separately either pay a tariff to come in and the quantity is unlimited, the visa quantity is unlimited, or they sort of combine to auction, you have to raise that price, I think would be um, both of those systems would be better. If we have a fixed number of visas, then an auction is superior because you have to allocate a artificially scarce resource. And I mean artificially scarce because the government limits visas artificially. You know, there's no natural limitation. So in order to allocate that resource scarcely, I think an auction is the best way to do it. If you have sort of a minimum price you have to pay, but have an unlimited number of potential visas at that price, then I think it makes sense for, you know, people to just be able to pay that price and come in. But allowing immigrants and employers separately or together to do that, I think, is a good thing because then we allow, you know, there might be an immigrant who can only really come to the U.S. because he's being sponsored by an employer. And so he might have to bargain with that employer to get them to pay enough of a high price and sign a contract about how many years he'll work, et cetera, or pay back the auction price if he leaves his employer early. And just more opportunities for bargaining and more opportunities for these types of arrangements, I think is generally a good thing, like more choice for people involved. You know, my obvious sort of, you know, answer to this is, of course, like I'd like a free immigration system where people where the price is zero mm-hmm. <laughs> for these things, right? But this is an improvement over the current system where the vast majority of people who want to come here can't come at any price. And so allowing, you know, them to come at charging some price, at least I think is an improvement over the current system, is a more rational allocation measurement than anything else that Congress would design in this sense. And I think it raises some revenue for the government, which might be a counter argument to some people who are anti-immigration.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Another proposal that I've seen sort of getting floating around a lot more is this idea of sort of community or what has been called heartland visas, where essentially some authority over immigration policy is effectively being delegated to sort of subnational units of government, which I think is sort of particularly interesting to us at CCI, where that's one of the sort of things we're thinking about is can and should a charter city have some authority over immigration, and how might that look sort of in coordination with a national government? So how might something like this work in practice where some immigration authority is, is sort of devolved?
2: So it's a great idea. I can talk a little bit in some more extreme detail about <laughs> the state-based visa idea, which has been mm-hmm. introduced by uh, Representative Curtis as a bill. He's a, represent- a Republican from Utah, and Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin basically introduced the same bill in different congresses and what this would do is create a large number of visas that states could basically sponsor on their own and the states would devise the means through which you know their employers in the state select migrants to sponsor or the state would select them or it would just basically allow them to experiment and for any type of economic migrant that they want you know entrepreneurs real estate investors workers etc., for things that federal visas don't even exist. And the way that would work is the state would set up a means to select these workers and then tell the federal government issue visas to these workers. The federal government then do their background checks to make sure they aren't you know violent and property criminals, suspected terrorists, that they're healthy, basically check to make sure they're not inadmissible under current federal criteria, and then issue them a visa to live and work in the particular state where they've been approved to, so they could travel across the country, of course. they could, you know, drive, right? If you're sponsored for a visa by the state of Colorado, like you could go to Utah if you want. you just couldn't live and work there. So, and then, of course, in the system, states would be allowed to share visas if they want to. So Colorado could sign a compact with Utah to share workers or to share some workers to allow to live and work in each other's states. And the way that You know, the the number one counter argument to this and sorry, and and to go off another benefit, right, this would design would incentivize states to design visas for professions or or types of investors or sort of economic development goals that they have that are not supplied by the federal government. Because a one size all visa system just, you know, might be good for some places, but it's not good for most. So it basically allows more experimentation and type of visas that work. Now, the number one counter argument to this is like, that sounds all well and good, Alex, but a lot of these visa workers are going to come in, they're going to work in Colorado, and then it'll just work illegally in other states. So how do you monitor this? And so we create a sort of carrot and stick system that incentivizes states to create enforcement mechanisms and to select migrants who will follow the rules. The carrot is if fewer than 3% of their migrants in any year Break the visa rules and become illegal immigrants. Then they get a 10% bump in the next year. So that's the carrot.
1: Mm, okay.
2: The stick is if more than 3% break the rules and become illegal immigrants, then their visa numbers are cut in half the next year. And if they do it again, they're basically suspended by the program for five years. And the big issue is, you know, for immigration enforcement, nobody has a real incentive to enforce immigration laws, which is mostly a good thing because immigration is mostly a good thing, even illegal immigration, right? Unless they're violent property criminals and national security threats or sick, right? It's a good thing, even though it's illegal. So it's probably a good thing those rules aren't in place. But to, you know, incentivize rule following and to make sure that states create better rules so that we have more legal immigration in the future, I think creating this type of system is really good. And sort of this, you know, Heartland visa that's been proposed by my friend Adam Ozimek and others that's been adopted by the Biden administration as a pilot program would take some version of this, but make it into sort of more local communities. So it's different. I think states are probably better because states have the administrative capacity to run visa programs more efficiently, you know they already have departments of labor, state workforce commissions that do this. Not many counties or local governments do, but I still support the experimentation because I you know other countries have state and provincial-based visas, like Canada and Australia. They work very well on these programs. Maybe the American way to get around it and to improve it is to have a sort of more local communities do it. So I'm all in favor of it. I think it's a great idea, and I'm happy the Biden administration is considering it.
1: Cool, yeah, that's interesting. So finally, uh, maybe I'm just not as plugged into migration politics as I used to be, but it sort of feels – That's probably uh, a good
2: thing for your sanity, by (laughs) the (laughs) way.
1: It feels from the point of view of an observer that sort of the the heat of the immigration debate has died down a bit. Donald Trump lost his reelection bid rather decisively. Brexit is – they finally got Brexit done. Not all, but most of Europe seems to have survived sort of the continent-wide tilt towards anti-immigrant populism. Um, You know, Merkel's CDU survived, for instance, in the wake of the 2015 migrant surge there. You know, there's still ongoing issues, of course, large numbers of of refugees and displaced people, Europe's hardening of its Mediterranean border and significant arrivals at, at the U.S. southern border. But how optimistic are you, say, over the next five years That we'll sort of see any movements, tangible movements towards freer migration and what might those changes be?
2: I'm more optimistic over the next 10 years. So next five years, I'm not very optimistic. And I think the main – my number one theory currently about the politics behind immigration reform is that most – when people see or perceive chaos in anything, they turn against that thing. So if people see chaos on the borders, chaos with immigration, they turn against legal immigration and become more skeptical of it. But the catch-22 is in order to get control and to reduce perceptions of chaos, we need immigration liberalization to drive people from the black market into the legal market. And if you do that, you reduce the chaos. I think that in some ways you're going to see some relaxation of the chaos naturally on the border of the United States with Mexico. And it's going to be through a variety of mechanisms. I think one will be sort of a stealth increase in the number of guest worker visas for temporary workers for Mexicans and Central Americans. I think this is going to continue. I think the reform of asylum laws or at least asylum practices So some of these people can gain asylum and the removal of some of these really bad Trump era rules will bring a more of a measure of order eventually to the border over the next five to 10 years that will allow some liberalization of immigration. But before then, I don't expect Congress to be able to do really anything. And my big sort of prediction is that in Biden's first term, at some point, he will undertake some very large executive orders. To basically legalize all illegal immigrants in the United States and to do some liberalization of these rules on its own because the bad thing is institutionally, the US president basically has total control over immigration and Congress is basically a dead institution
1: when it comes to that. And so they've shifted that – they've given up that authority in some ways.
2: They have. In terms of like statutes passed, they've given the executive a ton of authority, and the courts have interpreted these statutes in like basically the broadest way possible. So the president can essentially block anybody from abroad from coming here, and the statutory authority seems to exist that he can let in anybody from abroad if he wants to. We've tested the border closure portion of that with President Trump. My hope is that we will test the border opening portion of that
1: (laughs) under President (laughs) Biden. (laughs) With that, thank you, Alex, for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show, or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.